here's where we're at today. Whether it's the Bible that's in your lap or the Bible uh, that is on, uh, on an app or, or even the scriptures on the screens, I just want to encourage you to access the Bible. Uh, we are a church. We keep an open Bible because we want to hear from God. We want to know God. We want to be known by God. And an open Bible is a great way to do that. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And so what we've been doing in this series called Sent, you saw a little bit about it in the video, is we're basically doing a flyover of the book of Acts. And what the book of Acts does is it is an account of how the greatest mission in, the, in human history was given to the least qualified group of people. And God worked through the, the least qualified, the most unlikely group of people to erupt this global movement onto the stage of human history, and it has since become the most diverse, the most widespread movement in human history. It's called uh, Christianity. And so uh, think about it this way. Uh, maybe you watch Netflix. Maybe there's a TV show that you like to binge watch or just watch like from time to time. Think about uh, what's happening in the book of Acts like season two of a Netflix series. Season one, that was the Gospels. That was all that Jesus began to do and teach in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then season two is all that Jesus began to do and, and teach now continued through his church. So season two is the book of Acts. But think about season three as you and me. Uh, the book of Acts continues through the church, through Coastway, uh, uh, here even today, through, through you in your neighborhood. And so we want to show you a little bit about the significance of that as uh, we jump into something that I think uh, hopefully will be helpful for all of us. So uh, here's what we see in Acts chapter 15. Today's going to be a fun sermon. You're going to be glad that you <laughs> came to church because it's, it's all about this big disagreement that church people had back in Acts chapter 15. And I know you're just like, I can't believe church people used to disagree. I know, it's, it's astonishing, right? Well, that's what's going on in Acts chapter 15. Now, let me just ask you this question. Um, when was the last time you had a disagreement with someone? You're like, on the way to church this morning. So like, fair enough, you got off to a good start today. But we all disagree with people. Uh, we will disagree with our siblings, our brothers or sisters. We'll disagree uh, some, sometimes with our friends. We'll disagree with our spouse. Let me just press in right here for a moment because this happens is every spouse, every marriage, married couple, we have these things that, that are just goofy that we disagree about. So some, some of you, you like to wake up nice and slow and gentle and don't talk to me before my morning coffee and breakfast. Others are just like, let me wake up to a foghorn, man. Turn that alarm on as loud as we can. I got to get out of bed. I got stuff to do. So there's different temperaments right here. Others, it's uh, maybe uh, you differ on the shows that you like to watch. I recently read a statistic that said that 70% of couples, one of the two is basically pretending to like the show just to keep the peace. And they view that as a way of sacrificially serving their spouse. So I don't, I don't know how this happens, but uh, basically people are just trying to keep the peace. Uh, Eleanor, she are, is already kind of picking up on this at an early age. She's, she's our daughter, and uh, she's very outspoken, big personality. And uh, she was pretending to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. So she like put like a blanket over her head, and she had like this, this thing, and um, she was pretending to be Mary, and she was in there with Victoria and I. We were talking, and then she's like, hold, hold on, mommy and daddy? And she calls Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, Jophus. So she's like, hold on, mommy and daddy. I need to go and help Jophus because he lost the remote. It's like, well, I wonder how that happened. Maybe Mary hit it. But <laughs> the point being is we, we differ on uh, the shows that we watch. Or how about putting the bag back in the trash can after it's taken out to the curb? Totally hypothetical. Not that this would happen in the woods home. But you, you, you get the point. And there are areas where we disagree. And here's one. I think that this might be the clearinghouse right here. You decide to go out to eat, but you can't decide on where to eat. 
And so here's, here, I'm gonna let you know everything that I've learned over 10 years of disagreeing over where to eat when it's time to eat, out. And, and here it comes. It's not gonna be that watershed, but hopefully it will help a little bit. Uh, when you disagree, you need a big three. And here's what I mean by that. What are the big three go-tos that both of you, or um, maybe just the wife just loves? How about we start right there, men? Let's lead our homes, okay? Maybe just the wife loves. And so the big three for us would be McAllister's, Chick-fil-A, or Sonic. I know in most scenarios, we could go to one of those three things and uh, somebody's gonna get something that they like. All these things that we can't agree on and it's goofy. It turns out that church people do this too. We do the same thing. We, we have all these things that we can't agree on. What about alcohol? What about smoking? What about R-rated movies? What about tattoos? What about bikinis or yoga pants or things related to dress? What about holidays? What about parenting styles? This is going to be one for the books today. Pray for me because Acts 15 is here to help us make sense of these gray areas. And so gray areas are these issues um, where we don't have a verse, like a black and white verse that says, do this or don't do this. And here's a quick summary before we jump in of uh, what I really want to communicate through Acts 15, and it's, it's very simple, but here it is. We all need grace, and we all need to grow. You're like, that is pretty simple. It sounds obvious, but we all need grace. Why? Because we're all guilty. None of us are perfect. All, all of us need grace in some area of our lives. We all need to grow when it comes to the gray areas, because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take things that are preferences, and we will turn them into prejudices. So let's see this in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So let me explain a little bit of what's going on right here. Basically, you have the Jews. The Jews are these lifelong law keepers. And now they're starting to see these Gentiles, who are non-Jews, these lifelong law breakers, show up to church. And basically, the, the, the whole idea was for, for many, many years is Jews did not associate with Gentiles. It was like oil and water. You didn't see the two coming together. And now they're coming together for these church gatherings. And you have people who historically have been divided who are now coming together and are being united. And it was tense unity. That's what I can, uh, just the best way I know how to describe it is they were, they were uniting, but it was, it was really tense at times. And the Gentiles, they were saying, hey, we've been breaking the rules all our life, but Jesus kept the rules. And on the basis of his performance, we are now accepted by faith. And the Jews, like, they felt like they were getting skipped in line. Has anybody ever cut in front of you in line? How does that make you feel? That's how the Jews felt whenever the Gentiles were being welcomed just on the basis of grace. They're like, we've been trying to keep all these laws our whole life, and here you come just basically presuming upon grace. You've not done anything to earn this. And so they, they basically they say, well, we can't force God's hand right here, but here's what we're going to do. If God's not going to make you repent to him, beyond grace, then we're going to make you repent to us and make sure that you keep some of these rules that we've been doing for like 1,600 years. And so what they did is they said, Jesus plus. And this is the danger of every church. This is the danger of every generation. So for the Jews, it was Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. So here's what this basically meant. The, the weekenders in the first century were now full of women because the men were like staying in the car saying, honey, I'm not so sure about this. You go ahead. That whole circumcision thing, maybe, maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, but basically, we do this. 
we do this. We'll say Jesus plus money. Jesus plus status. Jesus plus a political party. Jesus plus a particular Bible translation. And you know, we go off the rails when we say Jesus plus in areas where Jesus didn't say. But, and so there's significance here um, when it comes to circumcision. Now, I'm going to spare you the diagrams. We don't show those at the weekend or I won't show those today. But for 1,600 years, circumcision was the physical sign of surrender to God that was observed by Jewish males. And literally, uh, this sign was stamped upon the most private and personal part of a man's life. So here's what I want you to see. Circumcision started with a man's sexuality. No, no man, especially in America, no man likes to be told what to do. None of us like to be told what to do, but especially sexually. But here's, there's, there's so much significance to this sign in the Old Testament. Because here's, if we're being honest, there's th- there are three types of men. There, there are men who struggle with lust. There are liars and men who are dead. That's pretty much it. So recent surveys show that young adults beginning with young males, find pornography less offensive than a failure to recycle. And so how did, how did sexual addiction form uh, er, at early ages and stages uh, for, uh, for boys, like historically, over the past 50, 60, 70 years? Well, basically, the, the, the boy would find the dad's or the uncle's Playboy stash and would have to have access to a magazine. How's it happening now? Well, it's happening at younger age, ages with greater frequency through uh, the medium of a smartphone, through the medium of a web browser. Uh, The first exposure, on average, is age 12. Not to mention, 70% of all divorces are triggered by a spouse finding another sex flame online. So, going back to circumcision, God knew how much of a struggle sexual sin would be for men and for, for everyone. And so what did he do? He started with the men, and he said, I'm going to give you a physical reminder that you're going to have to see before you sin. I'm going to give you a physical reminder that uh, when you go to lust, you're also going to have to look at. And so the significance of circumcision is not lost on us. I mean, think about it. What are today, what are the physical symbols that God has given to his church that communicate surrender to him. I'll give you a hint. We're observing one of them at the end of our time today. That's communion. And the other is baptism. And here's the significance. Baptism says, I will surrender. I will surrender by faith the most personal and private parts of my life to God. There's no area where God is not going to be welcomed into. When I'm wrong, he's right. I need to change. Baptism says I will. But communion, what we're going to observe later on today, is it says, I still. Uh, Through the confession of my baptism, I still surrender those intimate, personal, private parts of my life. So take a look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, so basically there was a lot of yelling, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this was a really big deal, and here's how we know, because Paul is stopping everything that he was doing in order to travel about 300 miles from Antioch, which is in the south in Syria, 
uh, uh, or, or up north from Jerusalem. He's, he's going 300 miles south to Jerusalem. That would be like the distance between here and Jacksonville. On foot, and, and he's, he's, he's having to stop some very important things. He's not like piddling around, posting reels on TikTok. He's not checking his fantasy football league. He, I mean, he is doing things that are affecting eternity. He just finished a dynamic mission trip. He's leading the healthiest church in the world at the time, and he's got more mission trips to lead. He just launched the most famous writing campaign in human history. He would go on to write 13 letters that now uh, compose our New Testament. And he's willing to pause all that over this issue. What's required to get right with God? That's the issue that's at stake. That was the issue that was at stake with circumcision. That's the, the issue that's at stake with many of the gray areas that we're getting ready to talk about. But here's, here's the significance. In Galatians chapter 6, which was the letter that Paul would have just finished writing when he gets ready to leave Antioch to go to Jerusalem, here was his stance. I want you to see this in Galatians 6, 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what are the things that you brag about? And let me, let me put that a little more softly. What are the things that you just talk about often? Uh, do you find yourself talking about just how busy you are? It's like we wear busy as a badge like people are supposed to salute us because of how busy we are. I mean, everybody's busy. Everybody's got stuff going on, but do you brag about it? Or maybe, maybe you brag about where you went to school, the places that you've been. Uh, you talk a lot about your particular uh, parenting styles or, or, the, or the people who you know. Well, here's what Paul would boast about. and He was a guy who had plenty of credentials, by the way, more educated than all of us, smarter than all of us, According to Paul, the greatest bragging right we have is that Jesus fought enough of us to be crucified instead of us. And so he goes, it would be about a 15-day journey uh, to get to Jerusalem. Pick up in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, so they're stirring the pot, they're still yelling, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So a little bit about the Jewish law is there were 613 laws that a good Jew was accountable to keep. And so Peter pipes up and he's like, boys, who are we kidding? None of us were able to keep all of these laws. You know, I saw some of you on the way into church and I saw some of you over here on the way to the meeting. I saw you breaking these laws on the way over. Let's, let's be real and let's be honest. Verse 11, and here's, here's where he goes with this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So why is grace so hard to grasp? Have you thought about this? Uh, grace is what happens when we get something good 
even though we deserve something bad. And why is that such a difficult concept for us to, to grasp? I think it's because we're conditioned to achieve more than to receive. You know, we think about sports. We think about education. Think about our, our, our jobs. Or, or, you know, maybe in school, something like that. And what we're, we're taught is that you need to perform well and you will be accepted. But here's where the gospel turns the value system of the world and our performance on its head inside out. He says, it's not about your performance, it's about my performance. And if you transfer trust from the basis of your good works to my perfect works, that is where you can access righteousness. That's where you can be made right with me. And what Peter's saying right here is the Jews needed it, the Gentiles needed it, and you and I need it. So think about it this way. What if every website that you looked at over the past month, what if every word you spoke, uh, every one of your thoughts, and every one of your actions were to be publicly posted online for everybody to see? Well, there's a few things that would happen. Number one, uh, it would be massively uncomfortable. You would be found guilty, and your excuses would be silenced. And This is what happens in this moment when Peter starts talking about grace. Take a look in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. It's like, I don't don't have any more excuses because you got me right here. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. And this is how we know that the resurrection really happened is because when Jesus was going around claiming to be the Son of God, but the brother of James, James basically thought that he was a looney tune. A few stops off the crazy train. Like, ready to admit Jesus into the nut house. I mean, who has, who has a sibling in here? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Who has a sibling? So, what would it take for that sibling to come to you and say, it's true, I am God. It'd be like, I am the Son of God. It's like, you're the Son of something, but it ain't God. I'm going to tell you right now. But James came to this point. Do you see it? He came to the point to where he bowed his knee, he bended his will to the deity of Jesus. And he replied, brothers, listen to me. So the room is quiet. You could hear a pin drop. He says, you remember how the prophets talked about this? Do you remember what happened with Peter in Acts chapter 10? With that, 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 that Roman reject who we used to not associate with and how the Holy Spirit fell on him and filled him? And he was baptized, and God didn't discriminate right there. You remember when Jesus uh, went, went like uh, completely off the wall on the people who were selling uh, and, and exploiting in the temple? And he goes through and he cleanses the temple, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer for who? Not the Jews, for all nations. And so skip down to verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Another translation puts it this way, we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. In Coastway Church, I just want to ask, can we memorize this verse? Can we, can we live this verse? Can this be our philosophy of mission and ministry? Have you ever had something that you really needed, but you couldn't find it, or it was hard to get to? Ever lost your keys? <laughs> ever misplaced your phone? Ever, ever lost your wallet? Ever lost a kid? I mean, <laughs> this stuff happens. 
Yeah, how frustrating was it when you couldn't find that thing that you need, that thing that you valued? How much worse is it when we make it hard for people to find and follow Jesus? You know, I'll confess, I feel the weight of this every single weekend. Because when I go to stand up to preach, I don't want to stand up here and use a bunch of seminary words that turns a message intended for all into a message that is only accessible to a select few. I don't want to make it hard for our northern neighbors to turn to God because they see no attractive alternative in the way that we live our lives. I don't want to make it hard for all the good old southern boys and girls who grew up on sweet tea but sour religion to see that it's Jesus' resume, not yours, that saves you. I don't want to make it hard for our LGBTQ neighbors to turn to God because we cherry-pick their sins as worse than our own. I don't want to make it hard for the CCU student who's ashamed of their entire first semester as a freshman to feel like they got to clean themselves up before they can come to God. But we want them to know that they don't have to clean themselves up before they come to God. They come to God and God cleanses them. I don't want to make it hard for our black, Asian, Hispanic, or non-white neighbors to turn to God because they see no multi-ethnic presence nor hear a multi-ethnic vision preached, which reflects the heart of the kingdom. I don't want to make it hard for curious guests about Coastway to turn to God because we didn't plan well, because we didn't have enough serve team members stepping up in kids' ministry, or because we didn't set up the space in a way that made sense or that was welcoming. I don't want the 1,500 people who move here every month to have a hard time turning to God because they have no idea that Coastway exists and our people are nowhere in sight. Coastway, the gospel is a matter of life and death. And the only thing that truly matters in this life is how we respond to God's great son and how we reflect him to a watching world. Amen? If we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that the grand strand would not perish, that you would not perish, then we must stop at nothing short of laying down our preferences to get this message to as many people in as many places as possible. Think about it. The last time you heard an ambulance, what was the most important thing going on in that moment? It was that ambulance getting to the scene of the crisis where someone had an emergency, where someone's life was at risk. The church is commissioned to be the ambulance to the soul, just like EMS is an ambulance to the body. And we dare not waste time. That's the priority that the apostles are settling in Acts chapter 15. And so basically they're saying, hey, let's not put a bunch of burdens on people who are trying to turn to God, but verse 20a, we should instead write to them. So the apostles and the leaders, they send a few trusted disciples back to Antioch from Jerusalem, another 300 miles on foot. And they send the heart of the message that they deliberate in Jerusalem. And it's very simple. Guys, we prayed about this. We processed this. And we want to set the record straight on salvation. Salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. If your conscience tells you to do that, do that. But it's not a requirement. The earning is over. The achieving is over. The performing is over. Grace has come. Jesus has won. Place your faith in him. Jump down to verse 28, and we'll see how they end the letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well, fare well. So there's two things that we're called to guard against right here. Number one was idolatry and the other was immorality. And that may seem like a strange list, but let me just kind of explain to you what's going on right there. The, the idolatry related to food that was sacrificed to idols. is So what would happen, uh, what happens with idolatry? What is this? It's when a, a good thing becomes a God thing. It's when the created becomes creator. It's when a desire becomes a demand. That's idolatry. It's, it's, it's when we elevate non-God above God. And so one of the ways that this happens then and the way it happens now is idolatry is about us paying a price so that our false God will give us peace, so that our false God will give us pardon. And so what would happen in the Roman Empire is there were these temples that were enshrined to these false gods. And so a worshiper would go to a temple and they would meet this pagan priest and they would bring a costly sacrifice and they would give that sacrifice to the priest and the priest would accept however, however much money um, it was going to cost to offer that sacrifice or however much money that, that goat or that lamb or that, that livestock cost. And so uh, the, the pagan priest would sacrifice that, that animal. Uh, and in sacrificing the animal, he, they would say, all right, you're good with this false god. This false god now accepts you because you have made a sacrifice. And then what they would do is they would give some of the meat back to that family. They would keep some for themselves and they weren't dumb. They would sell the rest. And, you know, we're spoiled. Like, we eat meat like two to three times a day uh, a lot of times here in our culture, but the only people that ate meat back in that culture were the rich because meat was really expensive. It was a luxury. And uh, so what would happen is they would sell the meat, and every temple would double as a butcher and a marketplace. And so the, the people would come in. Gentiles were used to coming in and getting, like, discounted meat. And so all these Gentiles, they start, they're used to this. It's not foreign to them. They start showing up to church. And they start showing up to community group, and they show up to the church potluck with demon meat. And the, Jew, the Jews are over here, and they're like, Lucius, like mid-bite with the lamb hero. Did you buy this lamb at the demon market? Maybe. <laughs> and so everybody gets silent, and they're like, have some standards, man. Do you know what an idol is? Do you, do you understand like what this reflects over here? And so it was dividing the church, and here's the point. What does the things you purchase and the places you go say about your worship? The Gentiles had to purchase something that was devoted to the devil. They went to a place that was devoted to the devil. And that was something that they had to learn. Hey, this is, this is probably not best. I need to be really careful right here. And next he talks about sexual immorality. Um, there's, there's a lot that could be said right here. Here's, here's what I'll say. Summarize it. Um, the Greek word for sexual immorality that is in uh, in this particular place is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And what is referred to by sexual immorality? I think clarity is is helpful in in our confused culture. It's porneia is referring to all forms of sexual activity outside the loving limits of a heterosexual marriage. It's not in vogue. It's not popular. It's very easy to persecute. And so in the Greco-Roman world, uh, men, starting with the men, sex was very transactional. Uh, men would exchange extramarital sex partners and prostitutes like they would their own sandals. 
And so the, the idea of sexuality on God's loving but limited terms was a totally new concept for them. And it feels like a totally new concept for us. In our hookup, shack up, break up culture, you know, we, we like to shout from the rooftops, I am who I sleep with. Don't you tell me what to do. But a way to think about sex is the way that we think about the ocean. Uh, the, the, the ocean is to be enjoyed and feared. There's a right way to enjoy the ocean. There's a wrong way to enjoy the ocean. You know, if you, get, if you go out there when there's like all these riptides and undercurrents, you're going to get swept away and, and you might very well drown. You got to be careful right there. Or if you go out in the, the times where the currents aren't that bad and the places where you're not going to drown or you have, you know, a floaty on or whatever, uh, you're, you're probably going to be okay. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to enjoy the, the water. God's saying there's a right way and a wrong way to enjoy sex. And if you go about it on your terms, you're going to end up drowning. You have to understand, we were sexual before we were sinful. What should this tell us? This should tell us that sex was a gift from God to us. It's not gross. It's not God. It's a gift. And when we enjoy it on God's terms, we experience good and we avoid grief. That's the heart behind everything that God is saying about sexuality to our culture. That's the heart behind everything that God is saying about sexuality to you and to me. And if you want to know Coastway Church's stance on sexuality, here it is. I'll give it to you really simply. We are all sexual sinners and we repent of all sexual sin. That's it. You know, we don't stigmatize one above the other. We recognize that sin in the mirror is worse than sin in the window. And if you sit there and, and, and you cross your arms and you say, oh man, I, I, I would never fall to sexual sin, then here's what you're saying. That you're godlier than David, you're stronger than Samson, and you're wiser than Solomon. That's none of us. <laughs> Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So one thing that Acts chapter 15 tells us is that every single generation of Christ followers, every culture will be tempted to displace the grace of the gospel and divide over secondary issues. We call these gray areas. So in their day, it was circumcision. In our day, it's a whole host of things. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you two questions that will help you respond to this, that will help you do something about this. The first question is this, where do you need to grow when it comes to gray areas? Where do you need to grow when it comes to gray areas? So here's what I believe Acts 15 has the power to do. I believe it has the power to set some of you free because all of your life has been about, I must not do this, you cannot do this, and it's all rules, all rigid, all requirements, not much relationship. But here's, what you, here's, a, here's something, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. As Christians, we are called to be fixed with our convictions and free with our consciences. As Christians, we are called to be fixed with our convictions and free with our consciences. So let me talk about the difference between convictions and consciences. Convictions are the fixed issues of the Christian faith. These are black and white things that you know, we can't dispute, we can't debate. It's clearly delivered to us from the word of God that's written down from him to us. We can point to Bible verses. We can point to church history. And we can say this is clearly commanded or this is clearly condemned. 
So when you think about convictions, you need to think about those two categories, what's commanded and what's condemned. So what's commanded? Well, love God first and foremost. Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Be faithful to your spouse. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. I mean, we, we all fall short, short here, but we at least know what the, what the target is. But then what's condemned? So what's condemned, simply put, is idolatry. Idolatry, you know, what we were talking about just a few moments ago, it's, it's putting non-God in the place of God. And now you're guilty of false worship. And so idolatry is, is the fire beneath every sin, which is the smoke. It's like, it's like the source, and then the smoke is the symptom. So idolatry is the source. Lying is the symptom. Idolatry is the source. Cheating is the sim- symptom. Idolatry is the source. Uh, sexual immorality is the symptom. And so what we see is that there are things that we should do, things that we should not do. And then there's the question, what about the things that are neither commanded nor condemned? Neither black nor white, but the gray areas. That's where the gift of the conscience comes in. Let me tell you about the conscience. Your conscience is what excuses you or accuses you. It's, very, it's, it's, it's a gift that's given to all of us. And different people have a different conscience. Some people have a, what would be called a weak conscience. Uh, this is the person who is wooden, inflexible, who's known for th- saying things like, you can't or you must in order to be right with God that God neither prescribes nor describes as a basis for salvation. Uh, then there is also a seared conscience. This is when you have an inactive conscience, you have an insensitive conscience, because you've been ignoring your conscience. This is a very scary place to be. This is a very dark place to be. This is where people end up at your kitchen table confessing things that would maybe make you gasp. This is where people would end up in my office saying things. It's like, I never thought I would go down this road. I never thought that I would look at stuff like that. I never thought I would be guilty of this. It's the result of a seared conscience. But then there's a strong conscience. And a strong conscience, this is not the person who has tattoos. They may. This is not the person who... Uh, drinks alcohol in moderation, they may. It's not the person uh, who says, uh, I agree with your parenting skills or your parenting style. It's the person who says, there's multiple ways to, to raise a child. You can or you can't drink in moderation. You can or you can't have tattoos. I'm not going to say you must where God did not draw a clear line. So what are the examples of this? Issues of consumption. Let's go. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Number one, issues of consumption. So what, what about tobacco? Well, here's a softball. Weed is illegal in the state of South Carolina. So that, that one's pretty easy. If you're underage, you shouldn't be doing it. That's illegal. But, but the Bible doesn't say you must never smoke. It doesn't give us a verse for that. And here's what I can tell you. There's godly people on both sides of the issue. It's pro- if, you, if, you, if you are addicted, that's one thing. You, you are a slave to that, it's going to lead you down a dangerous place relationally. It's going to lead you down a dangerous place financially. you got to be careful right there. But there's godly people on both sides of this issue. What about alcohol? Uh, well, the Bible says do not get drunk. But it does not say you must never drink. There are godly people on both sides here. And there's two, two types, kind of two camps in this conversation. There's the teetotalers. And that's not a character off of the Looney Tunes. It's just basically someone, some of you think it is, uh, it's, but it's someone who just says, I'm not going to consume alcohol. There's, there's strong warnings against it in Scripture. There's 100,000 people who die every single year 
due to alcohol-related deaths, and I'm not going to go near it. It's like, if that's what your conscience tells you, God bless you. You're not wrong. You, you need to listen to your conscience. But then there are the, the people who are responsible consumers within the church. They'll say, Jesus turned water into wine. Just because something is abused doesn't need mean it, we need to get rid of it. Sex gets abused. Do we need to get rid of that? Words get abused. Should we stop talking? Food gets abused. Should we stop eating? Not to mention, to the 100,000 alcohol-related deaths that are happening every year, there are 300,000 deaths that are happening related to obesity. So if you're going to toss the Heineken, you need to toss the Twinkies as well, just so that we can be consistent with our values. And so That was funny. If, if you, so if you're under 21, uh, you shouldn't drink. If you're a recovering alcoholic, probably not wise. You know, if, if, if you're tempted to hear this sermon and go and break open a PBR at your community group, please don't do that. Not best. That's, that, that, that's, the different people have different convictions and different consciences, and we want to lay down our liberties for the sake of love. Could you do that wisely, responsibly in other settings? Yeah, probably, probably not best at church. Your, and your conscience when it comes to alcohol, here's, you know, it's, it depends on your background, your denominational background. What's the only difference between um, a Presbyterian and a Baptist at the liquor store? is the Baptist won't wave at you on the way out. It's that simple. There you go. Won't forget that. Then there's issues of the body. So what about tattoos? What about tattoos? Well, there's a verse in Leviticus 19 that says, if you, if, like, you're, you're a devil worshiper if you get a tattoo. Yeah, there's also a returning king in Revelation 19 who comes down with a tattoo on his thigh. So do you go with Leviticus 19 or do you go with Revelation 19? It's a matter of your conscience. It's that simple. What about dress? Can I wear the bikini? What about the revealing top? What about the yoga pants? What about the shorty shorts? Whatever. Here's the, here's the question you need to ask. It's, it's a better question than can I do this and still be okay with God? Yeah, you can. You can. Because it's not your performance and it's not your, you know, your good works that saves you anyway. And it's not your good works that keep you in the house of, 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 of God's family. The better question is, why am I wearing this? What temptations will this arouse? For me, am I wearing this because I want to attract attention? Am I wearing this because I want people to notice me? That's, that's a significant to say that you're yet to be secure in how Jesus has first noticed you. And you're looking for attention in the wrong places. But also, how is this going to stir up temptation in those who I'm called to serve and to love? You need, to, you need to think, we live at the beach, guys. There's pools everywhere. There's water everywhere. We got to be careful right here. We got to be, be careful right here. I, I think that we could all agree men should not wear Speedos. Next, uh, issues, of, <laughs> issues of holidays. All right, what about, uh, what about Christmas? Uh, so there are some who say, if you rearrange the name of Santa, it spells Satan. Be very careful right here. You know, it's like you, you can't do Santa. They'll say that. Others will say, hey, this is an opportunity for us to really engage our, our children's imagination. This is an opportunity for us to still point them to Jesus, and we're going to have fun with it. You know, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to talk a little bit more about the historical St. Nicholas, who was a church father in the 4th century, who served on church councils like in Acts 15, who defended the Trinity and was generous to children. It's like, use that as a, as a, as a pathfinder and a, and a wayfinder to, to, get, uh, to get to Jesus. But it's, a, it's really an issue of conscience. What about Halloween? Uh, well, 
As Christians, here's what we can't do. We can't celebrate death. We can't celebrate darkness. We, 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 can't, we can't celebrate rebellion. And, and so, it's, it's, and some will say, hey, it's attached to the occult. And it celebrates all these things that the Bible condemns. And it's like, okay, others will say, it's the only night of the year where my neighbors come knocking on my door. And I'm called to be a witness. What do you do right here? Really, it's an issue of your conscience. How about issues of parenting? It's like, how do you parent biblically? Well, how does God parent you? That's where we need to start. He parents you, he, he parents you in three ways. With fear, you don't need to do this. With love, an unconditional commitment. And with reward, good things are coming to you. And so, you know, you might get all, all caught up on taking care of baby or baby wise or mom's on call and say, you know, this is the only way, the truth and the life. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, there, I said it. The fact of the matter is, there's multiple ways to raise a child in the fear, in the love, and the reward of the Lord. And someone with a strong conscience who's growing in gray areas will recognize my way is a way, not the way. Make sense? Or, hey, they could go to private school. They could go to public school. They could go to homeschool, and I can still raise them in fear, love, and reward. What about issues of entertainment? Can I see R-rated movies, mature audience shows? What about the music that I listen to? Well, uh, just a few principles. The, the, the gospel is very relevant to all of this, by the way. I hope you see it. Uh, if it celebrates sin, you need to be really careful. If it celebrates greed, if it, if it, if it celebrates treating men or women as sexual objects or pawns, you know, if, if it venerates hell and darkness and things like that, you just need to be very careful. And here's, here's something that has been helpful for me. If the culture just loves it, I probably shouldn't. Because I'm, we're called to be an attractive alternative uh, to the world. Uh, and this applies to entertainment. Uh, here's another question to ask. How does viewing or consuming this content influence my walk with Jesus? You've got to be very careful saying it's just a show. It's just a song. It's just a movie. That's what the devil said to Adam and Eve in the garden about the fruit. And what you think about continually, you will be about eventually. So be really careful right here. And I want to, I want to fill you in with a secret on all this. Is um, What does secularism do with convictions and conscience? Secularism, our post-Christian culture will do this. Will say that your convictions are actually just your conscience. And there's no such thing as a fixed standard of right and wrong. That's wrong, by the way. There is a fixed standard, and God determines it. But then religion will say your, uh, your conscience is your convictions and takes all of these Jesus plus matters and makes them necessary requirements for salvation. Both are mistaken. Both will divide. The gospel gives us a better way, and it's not to abuse our freedoms in ways that divide the church, and it's to be guided by our conscience in all areas of conduct. So here's the question. Where do you need to grow in the gray areas? Next question. Where do you need grace to cleanse you of your guilt? Where do you need grace to cleanse you of your guilt? I love how Peter, in verses 7 through 11, just owns the guilt 
of everybody present. He, he basically, he goes, man, talk about people who shouldn't be granted admission. I'll, I'll start with me, then I'm going to do a little roll call. I denied Jesus. I called him a liar when he said that he was going to go to his death at the hands of the Romans. You think I deserve this? Paul, you're next. You killed Stephen and others of our brothers. You were hunting down our, our, our own family in Christ when Jesus came to you. You think you deserve it? I don't think so. James, you tried to admit Jesus to the nut house. Matthew, you were stealing from all of us complicit with Rome exploitation. And then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we, Jews, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. And I can't overstate the significance of what happens next in verse 12. It says, and all the assembly fell silent. So it's been loud up to this point. There's been arguing up to this point. But for a moment, all of the virtue signaling stops. And the room is left with a hushed silence. Why is that? Well, in a court of law, when, when you remain silent and, and you have no more excuses, no more claims, no more pleas, it's basically it's an admission of guilt. And what Peter gets everybody in the room to see right here is that everyone must go through grace to get right with God. Now let me ask you this. If, if you were there in the room with the apostles in, the, in this moment, at this meeting, what charges would be brought against you that would move you to silence? It's like you deleted your browsing history, didn't you? You went incognito on that web browser, didn't you? You drank a little too much. You're still harboring bitterness. You paid for that secret that you're trying to cover up with cash, didn't you? You met in another city and thought nobody would ever catch you. You raised your voice again. You're, you're, you're putting your, your hope in yourself again. What would that thing be for you that leaves you silent? Knowing that you're guilty, no more excuses. Well, I can tell you, there was another who stood silent. And when he stood silent, he was admitting guilt as well, except it wasn't his own guilt. It was your guilt. When Jesus was stood on trial, being accused, being charged, being condemned, he didn't speak up because he knew you had no case. And he stood silent. What he would do is he would go on to pay it all, to buy you back and to bring you back. Colossians chapter 2, Paul would later write, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart have been made alive with God because he's forgiven you of all your trespasses and he's canceled the record of debt, all the accuses, all the charges, all the bad decisions that stood against you. He's set it aside and he's nailed it to the cross. And here's the question for you and for me and for all of us is will you exchange your guilt for God's amazing grace? Let's pray.